0: I mean, there are disadvantages like that. You know, sometimes you have to figure out problems like that. But at the same time, I really like investing at a distance because it forces us to be investors, to figure out how to solve these problems from our desks instead of driving over there and seeing what's up.
1: Your network is your net worth. Come listen to some of the most successful people I know share invaluable knowledge, stories, and advice in real estate business, and beyond. This is Weiss Advice. Whether you want to take your business or personal life to the next level, look no further. Welcome back to another episode of Weiss Advice. I am your host, Yona Weiss. On another beautiful day here, I'm excited to be podcasting, as I just told our guest earlier. I'd be doing this all day long if I could, you know, get me a radio show, and you got me signed up for life with a good enough salary, that is. Anyways, Great to be here again with Brandon Hicks as our guest today. How are you doing today? Good.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me
1: on. I'm excited to be speaking with you. I know you've had quite the experience in real estate over the years, and it's always great to get fresh perspectives about people doing different things in the real estate world. You know, everyone has a different story and everyone has different experiences. So we're here to learn from you today, Brandon. So I'm just going to sit back and let you teach me. No, just kidding. (laughs) our want to give our listeners a little bit of a background, you know, who you are, how you got started in real estate? Maybe, maybe a little bit before. You know, I know you've you've been okay. involved in the real estate world for quite a while, but only gone full time a few years ago. So, let me give us a little background on that.
0: So, uh, different is a good way to describe my <laughs> investing a- approach. I have a little bit of everything, but I started off as a factory worker who started buying single family and small multifamily rentals. And I did it creatively out of necessity because I just didn't have any cash, you know, being a, a low level factory worker. Mm. So that started in 2007. By 2014, well, the first few years, I just bought a couple. But from 2011 to mid to 2014, I'll say I'd went from four units to 28 units and I'd quit my job, started a painting business just to kind of bridge me to being a full time investor
1: mm-hmm. and
0: allowed me to continue to add units creatively. So over the next couple of years, I grew to 64 units, all, you know, single family, small multifamily up oh, to, gotcha. I had a 12 and a 16 unit, but everything else was smaller. Having 64 units and self-managing it, it was definitely, you know, stressful at times, but right. very, very tiring. And it bore me or it burned me out, you know? So when I hit 64, I I'd had enough. I stopped buying. And I spent the next couple of years just kind of repositioning the portfolio, you know, refinancing things, selling a few things, paying debt down, and just positioning myself for what was next and, mm-hmm. and I knew what was next was commercial, but I didn't really know what direction I would go with. I started off kind of by finding a partner and he was a, a younger investor who reached out wanting to buy one of my properties and you know I wasn't ready to sell, but we just kept having conversations. I quickly realized that he had a lot of skills that I did not. Mm. So I just kind of pitched him like, hey, why don't we find a commercial deal together? And so, you know, long story short, we started, you know, looking, it's been about a year looking at different asset classes, you know, strip malls, small industrial storage. And finally, in early 2020, I found a seller with two self-storage facilities in Angola, Indiana, which is not very far from where we live. And it was like a 12 cap deal. So it was a no brainer to go after it.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: we didn't have any storage experience. I had a good friend, Corey Herr, who got into real estate wanting to buy storage, but him and his wife, you know, their day jobs kind of kept them from being able to find deals. So we brought them in and we did that deal. And from there, the partnership has just kind of blossomed. I mean, we had no idea what it was going to be coming in. Wow. But at this point, you know, we have uh Couple single tenant, well, a few single tenant retail buildings, a handful of single tenant industrial. And we currently have four self storage facilities. We have flipped two, you know, just took them full cycle, 12 to 15 months. And that's kind of where we're at. I mean, we're, our model at this point is to buy underperforming self storage, Mm -hmm. reposition it. And then the goal is to 1031 those assets into single tenant industrial. So that we can kind of maintain or improve our cash flow from the storage asset, but free our time up to be able to continue to scale.
1: That's awesome. Wow. so A lot to unpack there because I have like so many questions, but I want to get started with, you know, kind of glossing over the fact that, you know, as a full time factory worker, you know, W2 employee, you were able to buy some single family and small multifamily properties, as you said, with kind of creative strategies, which... You know, to me, it seems like this—that's like the golden, you know, I don't know, the holy grail or whatever of real estate investing. Like people, the w- number one thing that people say keeps them from buying real estate or misconception is that they don't have enough money or they don't have right. money to invest. So, can you, before we get into you know the storage and the industrial, I'm really curious about that as well. And that's what it is in transitioning, going full time, and congratulations to you by the way for being able Thank to you. do that. But. Can you talk a little bit about how you were able to over the, the course of those years or what are some of those you know, quote-unquote strategies that you mentioned?
0: So I attribute a lot of it to being in the right place at the right time. and What I mean by that is you know, 2011, you know, we were just coming out of the subprime crash. There was still turmoil in the market. Banks hadn't loosened up by then. So I'll speak on the deals I did in 2007. I did three foreclosed homes with ARV loans through a local bank. And essentially what that means for the listeners is they were loaning me 75% of the after repair value of these houses. Wow. So for example, one of them was like 33,000 that I paid. The ARV appraisal was 72. So they loaned me 54,000. So I had an extra 20 grand to go out and fix it up. It
1: paid zero and, you know, out of pocket.
0: Yeah. You know, it, it was phenomenal. So I did three of those and went back to the bank for the fourth one. And, you know, by then lending had started tightening and they turned me down. So this would have been beginning of 2008 and I just kind of, or no, beginning of 2009. So I took it as a major ego hit, right? I'd mm-hmm. never been turned down for a loan in my life on anything, had great credit. So I just kind of, you know, I had three rentals at that point and I just kind of sat back, did my job and focused on learning more about real estate. So I started, you know, reading a lot of books, podcasts, you know, forums, et cetera, and learning about creative deals. And so when 2011 rolled around, by then, you know, I, I, I'd done a lot of studying and learning how to structure things. So I, I did a couple of deals off the MLS where, you know, like the first one was like 110K triplex. And on paper, I put down $10,000, but with the credits and everything, it was only about six, if I remember right. And that was pretty much all the money I had. So a few months later, that same realtor brought me a package of three duplexes. And that one was we negotiated like a quarter million and thirty thousand dollars down, but fifteen k of it was a note that I gave them on three other properties, just kind of a blanket note. Mm. And then around nine grand of it, nine and a half grand was credits, you know, um, taxes, prorated rents, security deposits, all that. And I used a credit card for the remaining six thousand dollars and got wow. myself in that deal. And then I took about a year just to kind of you know put myself back in a better position and. You know both of those closings, I had kind of a an epiphany, I guess. The first closing where I bought the triplex, you know with five and a half or six grand out of pocket, that owner got a check at closing for two hundred and fifty some dollars. So in my mind fifty
1: or two hundred fifty thousand
0: No, no, two hundred and fifty some dollars. It was just two hundred and fifty bucks, you know, because <laughs> after you paid commission and everything, there was nothing left, right? So in my mind, I'm like, wow, if I'd found that off market, I could have bought that for two hundred and fifty dollars out of pocket. That's what ran through my mind. The seller of the three triplexes that she actually came to closing with like 1100 bucks and still owed half of her commission that she paid in the spring, you know, or whatever, a few months later after we closed. So same thing, you know, so at that point, I started doing direct mail. And back then, a lot of people weren't doing direct mail. Mm -hmm. It was very targeted. I'm in small communities. I knew what I wanted. So I just targeted certain properties and i was able to negotiate with many of those people just you know two three four thousand 4000 dollars down on you know duplexes and such that were 70 80 grand a piece you know and i built up a great reputation of doing that i bought them all land contract paid everybody perfectly earlier than what the payment was due and just the reputation kind of snowballed i mean I, you know for the next deal i'd have a new reference and it would mm-hmm. just kind of grow from there
1: that's amazing so you were still you know providing a note of some kind and having oh yeah Having all kinds of I mean that's a great strategy to use because a lot of people don't even know something like that exists. You mentioned listening to podcasts. I mean, there weren't too many podcasts back then talking about right. real estate. I mean, what was there like the real estate guys and, you know, bigger pockets hadn't even gotten off the ground back right, then?
0: Right. Yeah. Back. I guess I guess that was later then. Yeah. I know, you know, back before Bigger Pockets, I was on a, a real estate forum called Cree Online. Have you ever heard of that? It's Creative no. Real Estate Online
1: before my um, time.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so Ray Alcorn, do you know that name?
1: No, also not.
0: Yeah. He's an older gentleman, very smart, very creative. He was in the commercial space. And I learned a lot about, you know, doing creative deals from reading his posts.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. Well, amazing. And so that took you through doing this. And all the time you're holding these properties, right? These weren't like fix and flips. Uh, yep. You know, a lot of people get into real estate and start off buying a house with low, low money down, getting the loan from mm-hmm. the bank, fixing it up, but you're holding them and collecting yep. rent, even yep. though you're not really putting much money down.
0: Right. And to to go on to that point, I mean, I still have thirty-eight of those sixty-four units. And, you know, they're all financed with banks at this point, except my sixteen unit, because that seller wanted to do a long-term seller financing deal. That's yeah. kind of my quote unquote day job now while I'm building this commercial portfolio on the side. You know, mm-hmm. it pays the bills while while we're building this out.
1: So you're still self-managing, meaning you don't yes. have like yep. a problem, which is one of the things that you like wanted to steer away from. Exactly. <laughs> I, would it make sense business wise to hire some sort of management company to handle some of that, or are you're just making enough money?
0: It's at this point, like I've sold off my problem properties. Like I had a 12 unit when I bought it. The first couple of years, it was horrible, and probably mm-hmm. the first six months, there was cops there every week, if not every day, of some sort. That property, you know, I turned it around, sold it. It was still kind of a pain, even up the end. So at this point, like I have a lot of long term tenants mm-hmm. who are just great. And when I say I self-manage it, I mean, I do the leasing. I do, you know, tenant management. I organize repairs and so on. But I don't actually do the repairs. i right, doing the sure. rolling things like that at this point. So it, it takes very little of my time. I mean, most of my focus is on this commercial partnership.
1: That's awesome. So how did you... Get. I mean, you talked a little bit about transitioning to going full-time. At what point did you know that, okay, I can leave my job, I have enough cash flow coming in or enough savings or enough Mm -hmm. equity? I don't know what that exact calculation was in your mind, but I'm curious to know how you knew. A lot of people think, okay, I'm maybe investing part-time in real estate. When do I make that decision to jump in and let's go full-time into doing this?
0: So I can give you two answers to that because I basically did it twice. So the first time for the factory job, I mean, I was making like 14 bucks an hour. I was stuck in there on a Saturday night on overtime. You know, my kids were home, my wife was home, and I just started running through the numbers while I was running a press. And it's like, okay, if I refinance these five properties, if I start doing the mowing on these, (laughs) and I start doing some of the repairs, and maybe start some sort of side hustle, like I can quit. And I literally told probably it was a small factory. I probably told half the people I worked with that night that I was quitting in six months. And that's what I did. And it worked out fabulously. I mean, I added another twenty-some units over the next couple of years. Um, you know, I had a, a fairly successful, you know, small painting. I'm going to say with air quotes business because uh, you know I was the employee along with whoever I had helping me. Right. So it's not like a business business, but it worked out well. It was a nice bridge. And then when it was time to quit that, basically what I did was, you know, I I sold a handful of properties, restructured my debt, refinanced some other things, and everything that I did, you know. With that, it worked out to about a four thousand dollar a month swing in cash flow, and I'm like, I'm done painting. You know, now there I can focus on figuring out what the next step was.
1: There you go. And, yeah, amazing, amazing. So now you found your partner. You guys are buying self storage, but you mentioned kind of transitioning, buying the storage, not necessarily as like a long term goal, rather as more of kind of like a short term play to kind of get into the space to have enough capital to ten thirty one. Or have enough equity built into those deals to ten thirty one exchange those to larger industrial. You mentioned mm-hmm. properties. So why industrial? And we've talked about it a little bit on the show, but just curious to hear where you come from. And before I even get to that, I actually wanted to back up and ask you another way. You, you can combine the answers if you want, but the whole time you are you're in some little town in Indiana. I don't even know yep. where that is. I think it's like somewhere near Fort Wayne, right? Yep. And you are, you know, buying all these properties locally or are any of them kind of outside of your locale?
0: So my residential is all local. And then in the commercial partnership, our first storage, our first couple storage deals were about a half. I live in a villa, Indiana. One of my partners lives in Auburn, Indiana, and the other two in Kendallville, Indiana. So we're all just north of Fort Wayne. So the first two storage deals were just north of where we're at. We bought a small retail building next that's, you know, a half hour in another direction. And then we've got a couple of industrial buildings within, you know, say 40, 50 minutes of our houses. But outside of that, like everything else is is out of state. Oh, really? You know, we bought, you know, we bought in Ohio, South Carolina, Arkansas, Alabama, a couple of buildings in Kentucky. So we're looking everywhere. And to answer the, you know, why industrial? So Storage is nice for all the reasons that residential is not, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. no tenants, no toilets, all that. But it's still management intensive, and we're getting better about that. One of my partners, Logan, he was doing, you know, all of the I'll say customer interface management, whereas Corey and Logan or Corey and Macy do a lot of the back office stuff, you know, the books, dealing with things through the websites because we use ESS to run our facilities. Mm -hmm. But Logan recently hired a virtual assistant to manage our facilities. And so far that is working out amazing. We actually think she's going to do a better job at it than what he was. And she sure. was doing a great job, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, our strategy with storage is to flip them. Some of them we will hold longer than others. I mean, we have one just south of Indianapolis that I see us holding for at least five years, but I think most of them will be, you know, one to three year flips. And it's really a management piece. You know, I don't think we can scale to where we want to be right. with storage as easily as we could with industrial. So and we especially like the single tenant industrial because they're responsible for everything. I mean, you can have multi-tenant industrial that's still triple net, but you still have to one way or another either pay someone to calculate like the common area maintenance fees and charge all that back. And and, you know, you probably still have some sort of common areas that you have to manage, you know, you or have managed, you know, the snow removal and all this. Whereas the single tenant, they take care of everything, you know.
1: Yeah, for sure. Typical. It's interesting. I've heard a lot of different perspectives in the self-storage space, and those who are most successful, from what I've heard, are those who really bring facilities up to speed when it comes to technology and just yep. trying to automate as much as possible. I don't know if that's feasible or even possible in in every single type of storage facility that's out there. Obviously, a lot of upgrades need to happen to do that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, you know, maybe turnover that may need to happen to get people up to speed, but it seems doable from what i've heard and and doing it that actually decreases the you know the management intensity that comes with storage
0: oh for sure, and you know ours we are using quite a bit of tech from the standpoint that you know we have websites and all the properties, and you know now with the v a you know she's handling all of that, so it does make the model more scalable than it was mm. when Logan was managing everything sure. but I still think long-term, you know, our focus will be on industrial. I mean, we're hoping to flip another, you know, 30, 40, 50 storage facilities over the next handful of years to really create that, you know, snowball of equity. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's worked really well so far. There We've you got go. A couple of nice, you know, exits for small properties, you know.
1: Sure. Yeah. I, I remember, you know, one, either yourself or, or Logan posting something recently about a deal that you, you know, closed out in like 18 months or something and, and doubled, mm-hmm. you know, doubled the value. Yeah. So that's. I mean, it's just crazy that even things, deals like that are still out there and are possible. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Where are you finding these deals? I mean, are you still doing the direct mail? Are you doing other types of approaches directly to sellers or using brokers?
0: It's a little bit of everything. We have a part-time cold caller that calls storage facility owners 10 to 15 hours a week and feeds us leads. We've not closed anything that way yet, but it's still a relatively new thing. We are doing... A fair amount of direct mail to both industrial and storage, and we've done several deals off direct mail, and we bought a few properties off Crexy that were listed.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Sure, yeah, I mean, there's you got to look at all the deals, and I think that's oh, yeah. a really important thing that you know we talk about a lot here is that you have to analyze, underwrite, look at you know maybe a hundred deals to find yeah. that one. Yep. You know, so don't overlook any source because you never know right. where you're going to find it.
0: Yeah, I mean, our, our biggest you know storage profit so far. Came from Crexie. It was, it was a deal that was on the market in Casey, South Carolina. And we bought it, I think, in February of 2021 with seller financing through a broker for 360000 And about 15, 16 months in, we exited at 800K. you know? Wow. So that was a nice 1031 that we rolled into an industrial property.
1: And with the seller financing, that's just amazing. You're able to do yeah. That. <laughs> yeah.
0: Very mom and pop managed, you know, and she was happy to hold a note.
1: Yeah. Wow. So where do you see yourself I mean you're talking about buying industrial and kind of scaling this side of the business. Where do you see yourself in, you know, 3-5 years from now?
0: So 3 to 5 years I think we'll probably be somewhere in the, you know, 30 to 50 million in assets range. We keep saying our 15 year goal is around a quarter of a billion in industrial assets. So we want to scale it and continue mm-hmm. to add, you know, that well before then we'll have some employees and so on on the asset management side and the acquisition side and so we're just looking to scale it and and reach our potential, you know.
1: There's a lot of availability. I mean, industrial is still one of the hottest asset classes and I mm-hmm. think as you know, we'll continue to excel with the you know, given all of the companies using, you know, virtual and you know online shopping and all kinds of stuff like yep. that. There's such a need for industrial everywhere. And it's amazing the spread that you can have because, like you said, you're not investing necessarily locally. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of people have that misconception that, oh, there's not enough product or there's not enough available in in the market that I know or that right. I'm in. Maybe you talk a little bit about maybe some of the challenges that you faced in investing out of state or in different areas, if there are any, and maybe what you're doing to To handle those?
0: So the challenges really are, you know, it's easy enough to put eyeballs on it. I mean, you know, you can start by looking on Google Maps and all that stuff, right? We've paid people to go take pictures. So we knew we were getting current pictures of an asset. And then, you know, we typically go and look at it during due diligence, at least one of us will travel and go look at it. The challenge is, it hasn't been a huge challenge, but it's finding the right person locally, right? You know, like with a storage facility to do what we call the boots on the ground stuff you know they're doing the lockouts they're making sure units are cleaned out cleaning up the facility outside some of the facilities it's been super easy to find people others it's you know been challenging at this point we have great people on all those properties but that that's really it i mean if as long as so there's four of us in our partnership as far as tackling something out of state i mean between the four of us I think we all have, you know, the confidence that we can handle about anything or figure anything about, you know, figure about anything out, you know, <laughs> sometimes it's the stupidest little things, right? Like, so we bought a property in, in a, not a big town in Kentucky, but it was a decent sized town and we were trying to, it was an industrial property and it was vacant. So we were trying to get the water switched over to our name and their policy was they had to see you sign it in front of them. <laughs> And I'm negotiating on the (laughs) phone. I'm like, look, we can do it on Zoom. I can go to my bank and do it with a notary and send you all this documentation. I can give you triple the deposit. I mean, work with me here. Let's figure it out. And they wouldn't budge. So I sent Logan in and let him play bad cop. And like, he literally like emailed every single employee that he could find on the town website. And finally the mayor called him back. The mayor, mayor, yeah. So they bent their rule for us and let him go and, you know, have this notarized and mail it and all this stuff. So it's, you know, I mean, there are disadvantages like that, you know, sometimes you have to figure out problems like that. But at the same time, I really like investing at a distance, because it forces us to be investors Mm -hmm. to figure out how to solve these problems from our desks, instead of driving over there and Seeing what's up. Because you know, nine times out of 10, you drive over there, it's not something you can fix anyway. Mm -hmm. So why be there? You know? That's
1: such a good point. And that's like, I think that's like one of the golden rules of real estate investing. I mean, you need people locally, you need boots on the ground, you need to find the right people to do the right things. And such a great, I mean, such a great story of the the local because there are so many local town, towns you know across oh, yeah. america and i mean midwest i'm sure is notorious but everywhere really every state where you get out of big big metropolitan areas a lot of people are still functioning and working on the same systems that they've been yeah. doing for 50 years you know or more yeah. 100 years you know like the title like pulling title from certain counties it's like pulling teeth. You have to go down to the office during their office hours, yep. you know, which are only like two hours a day, you know, three times <laughs> right. a week. And there's some little old lady in the back who you need to make like a photocopy of the title yep. in order to pull it instead of having it online. I mean, it's just crazy.
0: Yeah. The property cards for this property, when I contacted the county and had them email us, because we use PropStream, so we can get a lot of data that way. But I wanted to see the actual property cards. They were handwritten you know, which was amazing. I've never seen handwritten property cards. <laughs>
1: that's, awesome. that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I'm sure this facility was owned by these people for, uh, you know, a few decades before you bought it.
0: Well, it was an industrial building, but yeah, it, you know, it's a very rural area and, you know, that's how they operate. That's how it
1: works. Yeah. Well, amazing. Brandon, I want to transition out of what we call the final four. These are four questions. Ask all my guests. First question to you is what is the worst job that you ever had?
0: So the worst job I ever had was, it was right out of high school. And I'm going to preface by saying that, you know, in high school, I was a very good worker, very hard worker. I ended up getting a job at a small union factory, and it was a very toxic, and I'm not bashing unions when I say this, but it was a very toxic, toxic us versus them mentality. And I spent 10 years there, and I became a horribly entitled employee. It took losing that job and taking some time off to reposition myself back to where I was, you know, and my next factory job. I mean, I went into it with a clear head, was a good employee for the handful of years I was there, built my real estate portfolio while I was there. And, you know, so I kind of feel like that first job probably delayed me some. You know what I mean? Like I was making sure. just enough money to be satisfied, but I hated it. The people were great, but it was a very bad, very bad toxic env- environment
1: Wow. I mean, that's what they call the golden handcuffs. You know, you just like, right. yeah. you're there and you're locked in. And yeah. I hear that. Okay. Yeah. Second question. What's a book you've read that's given you a paradigm shift?
0: I'm going to say Confessions of a Real Estate Entrepreneur by James Randall. Hmm. It was probably one of the first books I read on commercial. And, you know, that was one of the first ones where I really started to understand that commercial was driven by net operating income. Hmm. And how you can alter the value of properties so drastically by changing the operating income. Sorry, my dog is
1: yeah. I mean, <laughs> back
0: there making some noise.
1: That's a big dog.
0: <laughs> he, he's a 170 pound saint. I did a podcast yesterday and he snored like incredibly loud. <laughs> it, you know, it, well, your, your like,
1: microphone's that. great because I yeah. it doesn't pick up anything from the dog. So. <laughs> I just saw something furry moving back there. I thought it was a rug at first because I can't see the whole body. It's yeah. like kind of. A little bit. I was like, what is that? And then I see it move. Well, okay. That's a big
0: He he's a big dog. That's kind of where he hangs out most of the time.
1: (laughs) I thought you were turning back to the bookshelf for a minute because you're talking about that book.
0: (laughs) Yeah. No, I don't have a copy of it right now, but that that was a great book. Yeah.
1: And it's amazing because that's the first time we've ever heard that book on the podcast. It's great to hear well and um, you know, something that was you know, probably written quite a while ago. And there's so much value in in some of these of older i don't say older but some of these older books that have people who have been doing commercial real estate for a long long time before the trend has caught on on Twitter, on twitter and all that all those good places third question what's a skill or talent that you would like to learn
0: i would actually like to learn to fly small planes it's not something i've ever put any effort into but it is something in the back of my mind that you know one day i would like to do that
1: very cool it's actually funny. We had someone literally last week on the show that said the same exact thing. So nice. that's great. Okay. Well, I'm sure uh, if you want to do it, you will do it. Fourth and final question. What does success mean to you?
0: How do I say this? To be able to live life impulsively versus reactively. And what I mean by that, I mean, it's just the standard to be able to do what you want, when you want, right. and where you want, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a twist on it, but it means, you know, that's exactly right. Living to do what you want to do, not being bound by anyone or anything. Right. I mean, that's an amazing definition. And, you know, wishing you much continued success. It's awesome to see where you guys have taken off to and love to see the continuous growth. And, you know, we look forward to hearing good things in the future and appreciate you having coming on the show. Before we get off, where can our listeners find you or reach out to you if they want to?
0: So I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, it's at HZCapBrandon on Twitter, and that's pretty much it. I'm just on those two platforms.
1: Okay, well, we'll make sure to put that in the show notes. So if people want to find you reach out to you, they certainly can. Again, thanks so much for coming on the show.
0: Yeah, thanks for inviting me.
1: It was great. And to our listeners, thank you guys for listening all the way until the end once again. And remember, the best advice comes only when you ask.